when you want to take advantage of a buying opportunity like that from a dip in oil, sure, are you just buying like you're buying the price? Are you betting on the price of oil directly, or are you buying? Uh, are you focusing on like specific? Uh, so companies that are that are drilling the oil. So I'll give you an example. So last year, my readers and I, we basically went heavy on refineries. Um, Marathon, Valero, we, uh, we, we got into the big refineries. And it was based on the premise that demand is going to go through the roof, which it has. And they've paid off in spades. I'm not exactly sure if we, and obviously there's going to be different metrics that are going to attract different investors, right? But I think right now, um, I like the upstream oil sector. Okay. And specifically, I like to find those hidden gems buried in it. Everyone, welcome to the Angel Research Podcast. We've got Keith Cole with us here today. <laughs> Keith is our, uh, our energy expert, and we're going to be talking about oil. Before we get into oil, though, i got to ask you about this shirt that you have, have on. I just thought it was an appropriate uh, wardrobe is that for, like this, a, for this podcast. Are you rooting for me to be hosting this podcast again, or...? Well, I haven't done it with anybody else yet. Well, I'm I'm here. I'm here with you, and I'm I'm excited uh, excited to be back. Excellent. So what's uh so what's the deal with oil, man? You've been well, writing a lot about oil. You've been writing a lot about kind of the price going up and geopolitical situations going on. Uh, so this whole year, the main theme that my readers and I have been getting into is that we are sort of moving into a, a very tight oil market in Q4. Okay. And that's kind of been just this, just this, this topic that, that not a lot of people have been, have been accepting, mostly because um, you see most of the news and it's the U.S. is headed for a recession. Our economy is going to fall off a cliff. China's going to just explode. Um, everything's going bad for the global economy. And not only has that not materialized, however you want to say, but not only has that come about, yeah. but it's the, the delaying the acceptance of a tighter oil market just makes things worse for them. It's going to make things very profitable for individual investors like us. Um, so first you want to just understand that this is purely a fundamental situation, right? So supply demand imbalance that we're that we're heading toward. And so if we just take each of those those factors and then kind of break them down a little bit, I think it's very easy to see why it's getting tighter in Q4, why now is you're technically not too late uh, to to buy, which is uh, one reason I'll get into towards the end. Um, but let's take a look at supply, right? Um, the last EIA oil report, I think it came out Wednesday, basically said production was around 12.8 million barrels per day. Um, now compare this to our previous peak just before COVID around 13 million barrels per day. Now, a lot of people are going to look at these numbers and say, well, yeah, oil production's growing. There's nothing wrong with it. Uh, the EIA is projecting that we're going to hit 13 million barrels per day this year. We're going to go and we're going to break our previous all-time high next year. Everything's going to be – it's a very rosy projection. And I, I have a feeling that they're starting to realize it's not going to come into fruition. Um, what you have is 
in my opinion, the biggest issue is uncertainty. Okay, you have oil companies that are very uncertain about investing billions and billions of dollars into new uh, drilling, into new act, uh, new drilling activity. You have a you have a very and there's a couple of factors to this. You have a very hostile uh, U.S. government toward the oil and gas industry. I think that's no surprise. Um, the Biden administration since day one has been very, very against uh, new oil and gas drilling. I think I think President Biden himself, well, he didn't, but his administration tweeted out basically from his uh, from his account that no new oil and gas drilling would ever occur under his administration. Is right? that true? If that's, has that been the case? We could pull this up if there was a if there was a board behind us. Yeah, but if yeah. you take a look at, at, at his tweets over the and to be fair to him, um, these were made during like the heat. Yeah, of no, the, I, I believe that yeah. they said it. What I'm, I guess what I'm asking right, is, right, is right. that true that there's been no that, that that's no, that's that, that's obviously not true. Yeah. Um, but the rhetoric. Yeah. Right. And so when you have that kind of negative rhetoric toward an industry um, last year uh, during the summer last year, when oil prices were above one hundred dollars a barrel, you had the president basically calling oil refiners or oil companies in general, war profiteers, right? Like it's, it's extremely negative. The, the relationship between the current administration and, um, and oil companies. So that's going to discourage them from investments because you're, if you want to, uh, if you would take a look at some of the examples of how they're actually physically doing, not just tweeting, tweetings, tweetings, whatever, that's just political malarkey. Yeah. Right. Um, but if you take a look at some of the examples of how they're restricting it, it's it gets a little bit scary. So when the Inflation Reduction Act was passed, right, Congress mandated that sale that lease oil and gas sales uh, of lease acreages in the Gulf of Mexico had to take place. So last January, um, I believe it was last name, January or February, that they basically announced the final notice of sale for about 73 million uh, acres in the Gulf of Mexico, right? Ultimately, this would probably bring about over over a billion barrels of, of oil recovered uh, over the next couple of decades. Like, it's just, it was a, it was a lot of acreage. Um, and then what you, what you see is now that, uh, now that climate change the, the whole debate, whichever side you're on, now that the whole climate change debate has taken front stage, right, in the media, you know, COVID's over, they just need a new new existential threat to, to, to grab onto, and everybody's going to fight back and forth over it. You basically had a couple of environmental groups successfully sue, and, uh, and it forced the... Uh, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, the BOEM, which basically oversees all that stuff, um, it actually caused them to rescind about six million of those acres in that in that in those lease sales, which obviously was, you know, causes an uproar in the oil and gas industry because that's that's a huge chunk of, of acreage, um, all on the premise of saving the rice's whales. If you've ever heard of this species. Um, I actually had never heard of the rice's whales up until now, but um, it's interesting. And so they're an endangered species of whale in the Gulf of Mexico. And I'm pretty sure when the Deepwater Horizon uh, catastrophe kind of kind of went off, yeah. they uh, that decimated about 20% of, of the whales that were left. So there was like a, like, I can, I'm not going to shit on somebody for wanting to, wanting to, 
you know, rescue the whales. Sure. Right? Like that's that's a, it's a it's a very laudable endeavor. But what's interesting is that in January, before this final notice of sale was actually given, the the BOEM released their uh, environmental impact uh, statement uh, on these new leases, and in it, it actually specifically mentions how the impact on the uh, on mammals uh, on the on the mammals in the area would be negligible, and not only that, but it specifically mentioned, you know, that it wasn't even sure. Like there was no conclusive data whether or not the rice whales, rice's whales, were actually uh, would be impacted in this area. Yeah. So what you have is you have the left and the right butting heads again. Sure. And this time the oil and gas industry is obviously going to be caught up again. And so now the American Petroleum Institute, well, I think along with Chevron, is now suing them to get that acreage sold. And so this whole entire sale is not even going to be. Is not even supposed to go until next September, until late September, okay. right? So right now you have a battle in the courts over whether or not that you know whether or not the BOEM can actually kind of cut off that acreage from the entire sale when it was congressionally mandated. And there's there's a whole lot of nitpicking you can do that would keep us here for another five hours, but that's just a, a perfect example of you know that's a that's a restriction placed on the oil so, and gas so that's industry. That's why we won't, we're not going to be adding any more supply. You're saying? Well, that's I mean that's it's gonna it's gonna uh, it's going to inhibit our supply growth okay. for sure. Um, it's going to inhibit development. And uh, just to kind of put vinegar on that little wound, um, you have the BOEM also placing down restrictions on the on the oil and gas industry itself in the Gulf, saying that like, oh, well, there's an agreement now according to the court settlement because the environmental groups also sued, right, to put these in place and they won. So now they have to like, they have to abide by a certain number of restrictions, like you can only travel, or you can only like, you can only um, travel in the Gulf of Mexico with these with these oil tankers and everything like that um, during specific times, at at specific speeds, which are which are going to hamper further hamper operations. Right? They're actually going to actually send people out to train employees how to spot the rice's whales from the ships. Okay. Which is, I mean. I don't know at what point we're going to start getting into into ridiculousness, but um, but hey, are, are they getting like hit by the ships, or this is purely a, if there's an oil spill, then that's a danger for the. I don't know. Yeah. I I mean, the one side's going to gonna lay out their their far argument, their their ridiculous argument. The other side's going to just completely discredit it. So, the question is, what's going to happen September 27th? But this whole little fiasco is. What's interesting to me is, is is it a perfect example of the restrictions that are that are being levied onto the oil and gas industry in the U.S. And the impact is that it's going to hamper supply growth in the future, right? Um, and it makes a very uncertain picture as to as to why an oil company would want to invest in new drilling when they don't know what the next move of uh, this administration would be. Like it's it's kind of scary. Okay. And so, so yeah. So that's that's kind of our domestic situation. Yeah. Right. And so there's other thing I want to I want to mention here. Right. When it comes to domestic production specifically, is that a lot of people and right now it would be 
It would be the people uh, in the administration, people on the left, you know, when they're butting their heads in their political arenas, they're actually seeing oil production numbers at the EIA, you know, are, are we're at 12.8. That's actually not too bad. You know, that's a, a few hundred thousand below our peak, you know, and then you keep going higher and higher. But what's interesting is that the EIA numbers aren't really that reliable right now, especially within the last year. The EIA numbers have been kind of fumbling their projections. Um, okay. They're not geologists. Like, yeah. they're they're number crunchers. Uh, these are just models of, the, just model numbers of, of production. So have you noticed that they've been they've been more consistently wrong lately is what you're saying? Um, well, they're, they seem to have a lot more inaccuracies, yeah. right? Now, I'm not going to say that we're not producing 12.8 million barrels per day because I don't have the data in front of me, yeah. right? But it wouldn't surprise me if we're not at that level. And I think it would be incorrect to assume that just because we're producing that right now means that we can grow it going forth further with all this uncertainty still lingering in the air. Now, when you look globally, right, you're looking at unfriendly, you know, producers of OPEC and Russia. Uh, not only do they have like, do they have mandated cuts for OPEC plus, but on top of that, Russia and Saudi Arabia also announced like voluntary cuts. So it's clear that they're that they're not willing to let oil prices fall down the way that say the president wants, okay. right? And we're well beyond the point of even asking the Saudis for. So is that like a coordinated effort against the U.S. or is it more just a personal decision for their individual? It certainly feels like a retaliatory thing, yeah. especially at the way that we went after. Um, Saudi Arabia last year uh, for calling them price gouging and all that stuff. And so, yeah, uh, I feel it's a lot more retaliatory. I mean, obviously, I don't sit in with the uh, yeah. with the oil ministers and, all, and at OPEC. But um, what that creates is um, a dynamic where the U.S. has lost its power as a swing producer. Okay. So 10, 15 years ago, uh, up until now, we've increased our oil production from 5 million barrels a day all the way up to 13 million barrels per day, right? All that oil, right, is a huge amount of growth for, for a pretty short period of time, right? We just had, we had the tight oil boom. And so during that period of time, if the world was demanding more oil, we could just unleash it onto the, onto the global markets, yeah. right? Like that was our, you know, that was our production. Like we had that growth that could that could amply supply demand growth, right? It would it would pace, it would it would match demand growth, and so we weren't really worried about price swings or anything like that. But now that we've lost that demand growth, like at best, over the next year, let's say let's say we do get above thirteen point one million barrels per day, right? Well, we're only looking at about three to four hundred thousand more barrels per day than than where we are right now. So do you expect some sort of plateau? Is there going to be a decline? Um, that's in up in the air. Um, I, th I think it's possible to grow, um, certainly. But then the problem is you get into the demand dynamics, right? And the world is now consuming more oil than it ever has been. The IEA uh, reported it was like up to up, upwards of 102 million barrels per day. Um, and here in the U.S., last week, if we're going to take the EIA numbers correct, then 
demand hit 21.4 million barrels per day, which is very close uh, to our to our record. We um, so you got very high, strong, robust demand, and that's just going to keep going higher. Thanks a lot to China and India, which are just chugging along and, and consuming as much as possible. Again, this goes completely against what people are thinking because they are seeing China going recession, the economy is going to fail, everything's going to go down, and yet ref- that yet. China's running their refiners is processing more crude than any than ever before. Yeah. So it's a disconnect between between the media and what what the reality of the situation is. And so that's obviously going that that so when that tighter those tighter market fundamentals come into play, especially as we go into like Q4, um, when actually I I think recently supply crossed over the demand on the curve. So, or I'm sorry, demand crossed over supply. So now we're in, once once that deficit widens, things are going to get tighter. Prices are going to go a little bit higher. And then we're probably going to see OPEC plus and or OPEC and Russia respond because they're the only ones that can respond. We can't, uh, the U.S. can no longer just, hey, tomorrow we're going to pump an extra 500,000 barrels per day. OPEC and Russia completely can do that. So they've gained all that power that we've lost as the as the world swing producer, right? And so here in the US, it's just going to be um hold on, let me uh let me back up for a second. Um there's a third component here that I want to talk about. And it's not just it's not just production and and supply gap, but you also have to think of two other things. One is inventories. And two is what we can do aside from just trying to drill our way out of this, which we're never going to do. So inventories, global inventories are actually going down pretty significantly. Here in the U.S., we are, we're experiencing a, a big drop in inventories. Just last week was a 10.6 million barrel drop in our commercial stockpiles of crude oil. That's the biggest it's been in a long time. Doubled anytime it's been a double digit and it was more than twice what people were expecting, that's going to cause a it's going to cause an uptick for oil prices, right? Um, in Cushing, for example, uh, which is the delivery point for WTI, that's fallen below 30 million barrels per day for the first time in a long time. Um, so inventories are getting low in the U.S. We've lost all the inventories that we've built up in 2023. We're back to where we started in the beginning of the year. Right. So we so the so that's going to be a bullish factor for prices going forward. Right. Um, And then you have to look at what we can do. Right. Well, in the past, what we could do is we could release uh, oil from the SPR and that's no longer allowed. That's no longer going to happen. We basically drained half of our strategic reserves last year. Um, have we not refilled it yet? Or? No, no, no. Um, there's been probably a few buys, but nowhere anywhere close to the to a significant level. Okay. Um, and in fact, I'm pretty sure the there was a Biden official that came out recently and said we're not going to re- be refilling it anytime soon. Um, everybody knew it at the time it happened. They basically said we're just going to we'll just buy more. It's no big deal. And now here we are a year later, and that tool is now effectively off of our utility belt, Yeah. right? So that's never going to happen again. And what's interesting about that is that it was a very short-term effect, right? Like 
Oil prices in the summer of 2022 were, were triple digits, were really high. Russia's invading Ukraine. Saudis and Russia were not increasing oil production. Biden had no choice to give to provide short-term relief to oil prices, right? And it was effective. You know, it brought it back down. But the problem was, I think that we sacrificed that short-term benefit for a long-term pain. And that's where Q4 2023 is going to going to take place. Um, but yeah, and so when we get into going forward, right? Um, I almost wish we could have bought more oil at seventy dollars. You know, right now we're at about eighty. And specifically, I wanted to get into the opportunity of why I think it's a, an opportunity now. Right. Where and do you it, where do you see oil going? So it wouldn't surprise me if we make our way up to 90 and like so barring any like black swans or anything crazy that happens. It wouldn't surprise me if we see oil test 85 move higher. Um, we have a few things going for us that could that could help out. Like this this week marks the end of the summer driving season. So demand should cyclically get lower, um, which is a good thing. Uh, but then we have what's happening right now is Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina, North Carolina are getting battered by, was it Hurricane Idalia? Yeah. So when you, when you talk about hurricanes in the, right, there's the Gulf Coast hurricanes and there's the Atlantic seaboard hurricanes. If you have a hurricane in the Gulf Coast, right, smashes into Texas, Louisiana, you're basically... At putting at risk, well, at risk is a ton of inf- of oil infrastructure. We have the bulk of our refineries down there. We have the bulk of our production down there. We have all of the Gulf of Mexico production, which produces like 1.8 million barrels per day. That's about 15% of, of current output uh, domestically. So when you have like a Gulf Coast hurricane that batters into Texas and Louisiana, you're going to get an oil price spike. You know, um, if you remember when Houston got battered and prices spiked from then uh, years ago. But then you have the eastern seaboard, right? Now, this one started in the Gulf, I think, and it basically cut across Florida into Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina. It's supposed to exit off the, the Atlantic. Um, I actually haven't checked the, uh, the path recently, so I don't know where it is right now. But what you, what you get, instead of putting all the, all the production and everything at risk, what you get is you get demand destruction. Okay, people obviously aren't going to be filling up. Yeah. So it wouldn't surprise me if next week we're going to see like a bearish oil report from okay. EIA. That's you know what I mean? Because so these are weekly reports are, that are it's a yeah. completely opposite effect. Right. Is what you're saying. And so if the demand destruction turns out to be bigger than expected and the market starts putting more pressure on prices, that's going to bring prices down a little bit. I think the last I checked today, it was... Uh, about around 80, 81, like trading in between there. And it was up for a little bit on the day. But what's interesting is if over the course of the next week, bearish sentiment starts starts building over this demand destruction, you're going to see pressure on prices, which could lead to a sell-off, which would make a massive buying opportunity for okay. what's going to happen in Q4. Now, I have to ask you, when, you're, when you want to take advantage of a buying opportunity like that from a dip in oil. Sure. Are you just buying, like you're buying the price? Are you betting on the price of oil directly, or are you buying? Uh, are you focusing on like specific? Uh... So, 
companies that are that are drilling the oil. So I'll give you an example. So last year, my readers and I, we basically went heavy on refineries. Um, Marathon, Valero, we, uh, we, we got into the big refineries. And it was based on the premise that demand is going to go through the roof, which it has. And they've paid off in spades. I'm not exactly sure if we, and obviously there's going to be different metrics that are going to attract different investors, right? But I think right now, um, I like the upstream oil sector, okay? And specifically, I like to find those hidden gems buried in it. Could you Let me give you an example. Everyone, of what what is up, upstream, midstream? Uh, the the drilling and the the, the explorers, okay. you know, the exploration uh, companies that are actually going out there and and getting the new wells. Okay. Interesting side note. Um, the EIA thinks that we're going to break past our, our previous peak oil production, right, next year. But it's, gonna be on the, it's not going to be on the back of finding massive new uh, oil fields. It's going to be on the back of companies becoming more efficient at drilling new wells. Mm. That's, a, that's a huge factor in their determination. What's, and what's allowing them to become more efficient? Just you, you tweak the formula. Um, the, you get more efficient at drilling the formation you're in, the formations you're in. Gotcha. It's it's your engineers just doing their jobs and kicking ass. And so <clears throat> and so what's interesting is uh, wait, I went off on a side side note there. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Where was I eventually? Uh, we were talking about uh, I don't yeah. know, I don't know where yeah. you were going with it. I don't know where uh, you were going okay. with it. Okay. No, the the side note was that that drilling efficiencies is what the EIA is banking on, yes. right? And what's and if you look at like the at the EIA reports, new well production is actually getting lower over the last year and a half. Um, but what I like to see, so what I like to do is I like to find the companies that are going to actually supply that growth. Okay, so if you take a look at at another major signal that things are going to get a lot tighter and growth is not ahead, we can see that there are far fewer drilling rigs active in the United States than there were a year ago, the year before that. Um, and that's indicative of future oil production. Because like I said before, you can't just turn on the taps. You have to invest, drill, complete, put it to, to it's, it's a process, yeah. right? And companies are in a very uncertain time right now to invest those billions of dollars in new drilling. So are there any companies that have been investing or well, are in a position to everybody's do? going to invest somewhere because you got to keep your 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 you got to keep your drilling inventory up. Um, but what I like to find are the things that most people miss. So if I were to ask you or even our young tech out there who so obviously Texas is the largest oil producer in the United States. That's that's not a it's not a secret. But who do you think is the second is it New Mexico? It is New Mexico, but um, I only I know this because because, I, because yeah, I know you probably you. read you probably read read my stuff. So, New Mexico is one of the biggest surprises um, in the last five years, I would say, and it's where it's accounted for at least half of U.S. oil production growth. And is that shale? Uh, it's tight oil, okay. and it's mostly located in the Permian Basin, which extends into southeastern New Mexico. Okay. So what I liked. What I like to do is I like to find companies that are specifically getting better and more efficient at drilling and are in a prime spot to 
experience the kind of growth that we want. What kind of data points are you looking at to determine efficiency? Um, production per well. Um, you can boil it down into into the different frack stages and and just like feet are the amount of production per foot. Um, there's there's a bevy of, of different okay. of different ways you can look at it. Um, I don't want to get into the drilling techniques. We can save that for next time because I think there's an up-and-coming drilling technique that's new that nobody else is doing. That is that the U-turn? Do you, you – what is it? Is that like – am we'll, I wrong? We'll talk about that next time. Okay. All right. Yeah. Am I on the right so, path? Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, yeah. So all this basically – all this uncertainty, like I said, leads to a much tighter Q4. And then the current this week, I guess this podcast won't be out until next week, but but the after effects of Hurricane Idalia could put downward pressure and create a buying opportunity like right now. All right. So if anyone wants to learn about these uh, New Mexico drillers that you're eyeing, where would they go? Well, you can subscribe to Energy Investor, which is my energy newsletter. And... Uh, yeah, you can read our energy and capital uh, articles. All right, cool. You want to chat about anything else, Keith? Or I think I'm good. All right. How about you? You want to talk about something? Nah, <laughs> I, I kind of wanted to touch on the AI stuff, but I feel like this is we can it, get into AI. It, next, we might want to separate week. it just because this is a heavy, yeah. heavy oil podcast. Yeah. Uh, well, 100% oil podcast. All right, Keith. So it was good seeing you. Sounds good, bud. Appreciate the shirt. All right.